So before we look at the text this morning, I want to just tell you that I, I firmly believe in plug theory. Firmly believe in plug theory. Now, I admit not many people believe in plug theory, and probably not many of you have even heard of plug theory. Let me just tell you what it's about. Plug theory says that every country has a plug somewhere around its geographic center. And this is, this is top secret. This is why not many people know about it. Um, and this plug, if somebody pulls it, that country then sinks down into the ocean. So it's very important that the plug is well defended by, by military, by government. It's top secret. Okay? Um, in the United States, their plug is probably somewhere around Kansas, here in Canada, somewhere around Manitoba. Uh, nowhere, no, no one's going to find it. Okay? Um, you now know what happened to the island of Atlantis. Somebody found its plug and pulled its plug. Now, Holland, somebody pulled Holland's plug and it was sinking, but they put it back in, raised the dikes. That way they're no longer uh, sinking down into the ocean. Okay. Are you guys convinced about plug theory? Maybe perhaps you need to hear a bit more about plug theory if you're going to believe in it. Now, if I really believed in plug theory, you would conclude that I've completely lost it. I need to get checked out in the head. There's something wrong. I've, I've given up logic and reality. Um, now, when I say I believe in plug theory, I get a, a laugh and mock. I, I know you're joking. Uh, but if I was to say to you that I believe from the Bible, from Genesis 1 and 2, that this world was created in God by, by six consecutive 24-hour days, and that happened just thousands of years ago, I'd get the same kind of laughs and reactions as if I was believing in plug theory. And it's that topic that I want to turn to here today. To even make a claim or even to suggest that God has made this world just thousands of years ago in six days is almost seen as completely absurd in our society today. You'll be dismissed as a buffoon or a bigot of the worst stripe, just an intellectual, it's inferior intellectually. Like, what rock have you just crawled out of? One of the most quotable, one of my, my favorite most quotable authors, Richard Dawkins, says this. Here is what separates real scientists from the pseudoscientists of the School of Intelligent Design. One thing all real scientists agree upon is the fact of evolution itself. It is the fact that we are cousins of gorillas, kangaroos, starfish, and bacteria. Evolution is as much a fact as the heat of the sun. It is not a theory. And for pity's sake, let's stop confusing the philosophically naive by calling it so. Evolution is a fact. Okay. Another evolutionist says this. It is time for students of the evolutionary process especially those who have been misquoted and used by the creationists to state clearly that evolution is a fact, not theory. All present forms of life arose from ancestral forms that were different. Birds arose from non-birds and humans from non-humans. No person who pretends to any understanding of the natural world can deny these facts. So I guess I stand here condemned as someone who is philosophically naive and, and unable to even grasp uh, the simple facts of nature. Now, it's not just evolutionists and scientists who make these kinds of claims, but many Christians, many Christians 
Many churches, many scholars, many schools, and many seminaries have felt this pressure to conform and have agreed that Genesis 1 and 2 says nothing about how God created this earth. That it's supposed to be taken as poetry or figurative or mythical. That it's not talking about God creating this world in six days thousands of years ago. They even claim today that young earth creationists, those who believe in a young earth that was created by God, that that a person like myself is, is the new kid on the block and we're creating divisions and strife in the body of Christ because they say, historically, no one has believed these things. It's only been recently with people like Ken Ham and others. Uh, They say, you know, the church fathers and and the reformers and the Westminster divines, they didn't hold to these truths. Now, if you've ever heard that, I just want to tell you right now, that is a complete lie, a complete fabrication. It's deception. I can give you a pile of sources from the church fathers, from the reformers, from the Westminster divines who believe that God created the world in six 24-hour days and it happened just thousands of years ago. For example, they'll use someone like Augustine. And they'll say, look, Augustine didn't understand Genesis 1 literally. He took it as as a figurative, as a metaphor, as a parable. And they'll stop it at that. And and they'll assume that Augustine believed in millions and billions of years in the process of, of evolution. But that's not true. Now, Augustine did not interpret Genesis 1 literally. That is true. He didn't interpret much of the Old Testament literally. Okay, but what he did believe about creation, if you keep on reading his works, he believed not that God created it in six days, but that God created the earth instantly, 6,000 years ago. Okay, uh, he says, why, why would God need to, 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 to draw it out? He could just speak and everything is there. And so he believed that this earth was created in an instant and he believed in a young earth. And in fact, if you look at the church fathers, look at the reformers, the Westminster divines, they all held to the reading of scripture as we have just read that God has created this earth earth in six days just thousands of years ago it wasn't until geologists in the 1800s that people began to look at scripture differently and we have to ask ourselves you know what is what is reasonable to believe you know our, our intelligence philosophy uh, science is all being questioned what is what is reasonable to believe is it reasonable to believe that an eternal all-powerful all-knowing, all-wise God can create this world in six days? Is that reasonable? Uh, if, you, if you think that is unreasonable, then what you're left with is the explanation of science which says there was nothing, and then there was an explosion, and now there's something. And now, in fact, there's everything. What's more reasonable to believe, that an all-powerful, eternal God has created this earth, or that we're all an explosion out of absolutely Nothing. Now, we all know that something doesn't come from nothing, but we're all duped into thinking this. We're all duped into thinking that if we add more time, lots and lots of time, maybe billions of years, then the impossible will now somehow become possible. But that doesn't make sense. Um, so-called intellectuals today not only have this issue of saying that everything comes from nothing, but the whole problem that life, that living organisms came from non-life. What is ironic, uh, scientifically and historically, uh, when, when Charles Darwin released his uh, On the Origin of Species, talking about his theory of evolution, two years after that, Louis Pasteur had the famous experiment 
Uh, and, and Louis Pasteur proved that uh, living organisms cannot just come out of nothing. That you, you just can't have a living organism just come out of nothing or come out of a dead thing. And so that completely scientifically demonstrated experimentally uh, that Darwin's theories could not be true when you have life coming from non-life. But this is overlooked today because evolution has become in our society an article of unshakable faith. You must not question it. Evolution is an attempt to explain the existence of all things without God and it's so ferociously defended because it's their only solution. That's the one article of faith. There is no God and and said we came from stardust. Now, we must be careful as Christians when we take to the word of God by filtering God's word through an unbelieving worldview, through through a naturalistic, materialistic uh, worldview that says there is no God. How are we... If we filter scripture with that filter, then how reasonable is it to you that Jesus was born of a virgin? That doesn't sound very plausible or scientific or reasonable. How reasonable is it that Jesus died and three days later rose again? That doesn't sound very plausible. It doesn't sound very scientific to me. And what happens was as, as Christians in history started taking the, the grid of the unbelieving world that says there is no God and going back and looking at scripture, they denied those truths. It's called liberalism. They denied creation. They denied the virgin birth. They denied the resurrection. But what does the Apostle Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians 15? If Christ was really not raised, then we are the most people to be pitied. Our faith is vain. We're still in our sins. We're hopeless. Christianity is nothing unless it is historical and true, unless the word of God is true in all that it says. Our faith is in vain if that is not true. And so we had this group of Christians called the, the fundamentalists who fought for the faith, who fought for the virgin birth, who thought, fought for the creation account, who fought for the resurrection. And we're here today because they're beneficiaries because they stood up in a time and a culture when they were being asked to compromise and to cave to an unbelieving view of this world. Our cry should be the same as theirs. Let God be true, but every man a liar. Now, one thing I want to say too before we look at this text is I'm not advocating as we look at the Bible and look at science and evolution, these things. I'm not advocating a close your eyes, plug your ears, and I'm not listening. I don't care about the evidence. You know, I'm just going to read what the Bible says. No, I love evidence. I love philosophy. I love science. I I, I graduated as an engineer, worked in that field for many years. I love to problem solve. I love to think through these hard issues. Okay? The reality and the real world and scientific discovery are not opposed to the Christian faith. Christian faith is historical. It's intellectually rigorous and satisfying. The whole scientific community has arose from a biblical worldview. And so we should not back down or be afraid. And I thank God for the many scientists who are Christians and who do science in a, in a Christian manner. Let's look at the text of Scripture this morning. I'm going to read to you again. I know Bert just read us Genesis 1 to 2, 3, but I want to read it to you again um, quickly here this morning. As we think through, what exactly does Genesis 1 say about how God created this world? Okay? Genesis 1, 1. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees, bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Now verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. 
And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Okay, now what do we do with a text like this? We read this for you a few times here this morning. You have to admit, and even those who don't agree, would have to admit that this text seems to be, appear, it seems to read as if God is making the earth in six days and then resting on the seventh day. That would be the, the natural reading of this text. Nowhere are you going to find in this text millions or billions of years that are required uh, for a theory like evolution. You're simply not going to, to find it here in this text. In fact, not only do you find God creating this world in six days, you have a a somewhat seeming outrageous verse, like in verse 30, where it says, And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. Scriptures teach that before the fall happened in Genesis 3, there was no death. And in fact, you even have the animals eating plants. And it's, there was no, no death, no carnivores before the fall. And such claim is that it's outstanding for us to even think of today. How can this be true? How can this be in accordance with reality? It's almost laughable, as I mentioned, to understand a literal or just a straightforward understanding of Genesis 1. In fact, in studying for the sermon, consulting a number of books, there was one book I picked up by an evangelical publisher called Three Views on the Genesis Account. Okay, and if you haven't heard of these books, there's books come out there are three or four views or five views on these different theological issues and they have someone who, who writes as an evangelical uh, advocating certain positions and they write back and forth. It's almost like a debate in a book. And so as I picked up this, these, this three views book about the interpretation of Genesis, of those views, not one view took Genesis 1 literally in terms of God created this earth in six days. It wasn't even mentioned in this book. This is not even an option today to consider that because we all know that evolution is true and that this earth has been around for, for millions and billions of years. Just look at the geology and all these kinds of evidence that we see around us. So for someone who, who understands or who, who accepts the evolutionary timetable, what do we do with Genesis 1? Well, some people say, well, it's this myth or it's poetry, it's figurative, it's a parable. And some even say, well, all the way up to, in fact, all the way up to Genesis chapter 12 is figurative. It's mythical. You know, Noah and the flood didn't happen. Uh, the Tower of Babel. Those are, those are the stories that, that teach the people of Israel kind of where they came from, but they're, they don't, they're not true. They're not historical. I just want to look at that for a second because this is, sadly, in Christian circles, a lot of people believe this and it's being taught. And so we must look at it here this morning. Let me say this clearly, that there is no distinction in the book of Genesis between the first 11 chapters and chapter 12 to chapter 50, okay? There's no distinction between that which is mythical versus that which is historical, all right? Abraham is mentioned in Genesis chapter 12, but Abraham's genealogy is mentioned in Genesis chapter 11, Okay, so those, those two things are, are tied. And in fact, also in Genesis chapter 11, the genealogy goes back to Shem. And Shem, that connects his genealogy, the genealogy in chapter 10, and the flood account that Shem was in, in Genesis 6 through 9. And to the genealogy in chapter 5, where we have Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
And Genesis 5 has a genealogy that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2. So that you can't say that these first people are figurative and then Abraham is now suddenly historical. Not only that, but Genesis 1 to 11 contains 66 geographical names, 88 personal names, 48 generic names, 20 identifiable cultural items, gold, bdellium, onyx, brass, and so forth. In fact, Genesis alone, Genesis, sorry, Genesis 10 alone has five times more geographical data than the entire text of the Quran. If you're looking at the in terms of the historical accuracy of Genesis in the first 11 chapters. Now, to suggest that Genesis 1 to 11 is it's simply silly when you consider its relation to 12 and following. Not only that, but we have New Testament references. There's 25 New Testament references back to Genesis 1 to 11, and each and every single one understand it to be an historical account. Jesus, from Matthew 19, quotes Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 as historical. Uh, Paul quotes from Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6, Genesis 2, and, the, and they shall become one flesh. Hebrews 4 cites Genesis 2-2, about God resting on the seventh day. Uh, the fall in Genesis 3 is regarded in, as literal in 2 Corinthians 11. Paul discusses the role of men and women in 1 Timothy 2, and he talks about how Adam was formed first, then Eve, and, the, and Eve was deceived, not Adam. Again, looking back at these historical accounts in Genesis 2 and, th- two and 3. Uh, Romans 5 12 to 14, mentions Adam, mentions Moses in the same breath, putting those two figures side by side, both as historical. Cain's murder is mentioned in 1 John chapter 3 as an historical event. Jesus mentions the blood of Abel in Luke chapter 11, all as historical events and all happening in the first few chapters of Genesis. Now, I'm not done yet. Jesus also said his second coming is going to be similar to the days of Noah he says that in Matthew 24 and Luke 17. He also talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his wife. Uh, Peter mentions three times in his two letters a global catechismic flood that is described back in Genesis 6 through 9. Hebrews chapter 11 has the hall of faith where it talks about so-and-so had faith and so-and-so. And we always know people like Abraham and David, but it also mentions Abel. It mentions Enoch from Genesis 5. It mentions Noah from building the ark. And they're placed all alongside these historical names. To say that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are somehow figurative or mythical is impossible when you look at how the scripture handles those texts from the New Testament. And then we have the long list of genealogies that are in those first 11 chapters of Genesis. Lots of genealogies. And if you look at Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 3 has the genealogy of Jesus and 20 names from that genealogy are taken from Genesis chapter 5. So are we supposed to assume that those first 20 names in Jesus' genealogy are just mythical and figurative and then they get into historical names later on? Of course not. It doesn't make any sense at all rather than to read Genesis 1 to 11 as the New Testament authors did as history that really took place. So we should agree with Jesus. I think he's a good role model to follow in terms of how he viewed the Bible and Peter and Paul and those other New Testament writers. Now, because of this seemingly insurmountable problem where the New Testament writers recognize that Genesis 1 to 11 is historical, people have taken a somewhat, um, not, a, not a, a far-reaching approach. Because the only time in Genesis 1 to 11 that actually the event of creation is mentioned and given some kind of chronology is Genesis chapter 1. 
So really Genesis chapter 1 is, is our only problem. If we can see in Genesis chapter 1 uh, millions or billions of years, or at least allow for it, then the problem is solved. We can see the rest of Genesis as historical, but Genesis chapter 1 just has to go if we're going to, or has to adapt in some way, if we're going to allow for this deep time, these millions and billions of years. Now there's a number of ways that people have done this uh, since the late 1800s. Perhaps you've heard of some of these. I'll just say these really quickly. Uh, the first one is gap theory. Uh, gap theory proposes that in Genesis 1, 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we stop there. And, it, and before you get into Genesis 2, uh, millennia, millions, billions of years have gone by uh, before we get into Genesis 1, verse number 2. Now that theory uh, was popularized, uh, was in the Schofield Reference Bible, was popularized, uh, but nobody um, pu- publishes on it or writes about it today because it's, it's grammatically impossible uh, to read the Hebrew language with a huge gap between 1-1 and 1-2. So that theory is no longer defended by, by anyone I know. The second one that you might have heard of is called the day-age theory. And what the day-age theory says is that well, each of these days in Genesis 1 are not meant to be 24-hour days, like days like you and I know them. But these days are really long, long periods of time. These are epochs. These are, there is no time frame or definition. It could be millions or more years in each one of these days. And they say that as the, as the Genesis 1 unfolds, it's just, it's just describing how God, uh, not in an instant created these things, but how he, he providentially oversaw this process of evolution. And, and, and it played out in these epochs that we see in these days. Now, again, this theory is, again, falling on hard times uh, for, for a number of reasons. Uh, for instance, look down at verse number 11 in Genesis chapter 1. It says, And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. Okay, and it was so. So in verse number 11, God creates, or in this view, uh, God oversees the evolution of vegetation and plants and fruit trees. Now the problem is, when you go down to verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth and it was so. And so here we have in verse 14, 15, and 16, God creating the sun, moon, and stars. And so if God is overseeing this evolutionary process over millions or billions of years, then we have vegetation on this earth for for an epoch, for a long period of time before we even have the sun created. And in, in fact, this is not the only problem. When you look at Genesis 1, it does not follow a scientific, what, what they assume today is the evolutionary model of how things came to be. The, the chronology, the timeline is, is completely off. And so people, again, mostly have abandoned this theory by saying it doesn't make sense of the text nor of what we see in science. So what is now, by and large, the greatest view of Genesis 1 by those who, who desire to see deep time or millions and billions of years is to say that, well, Genesis 1 is, is poetic. It's poetic. It, it's figurative. It's this majestic prose to talk about how great our creator it is, but it doesn't say anything about how God created this earth. In fact, we have to turn to science to understand how God did it. Okay? And so, 
this theory, again, is not without any merit. And what I say by that is that it sounds quite compelling. For instance, we think of creation happening in six days. Okay? What happens on the first day? Okay, we have, we have day one, two, and three over here. I'm going to do day, day four, five, and six over here. Okay, so day one, we have something formed. And day two, we have something formed. And day three, we have something formed. And then day three, four, and, and five, or sorry, uh, three, yeah, three, four, and five, four, five, and six. I knew I was, I was off there. I'm not ending the right number. Four, five, and six, we have things filled into what was formed. So for instance, on the first day, we have uh, the sky separated from the waters. Okay, and then on the fourth day, we have birds created and sea creatures in the sky and in the waters. There seems to be a parallel between one and four. And then as we go to day two, we have, um, what do we have happening in day number two here? I've lost my train of thought. Oh, sorry, I, I got the day one. That's why I lost my train of thought. The day one is wrong. Uh, we have the expanse created, and then in day four, we have the sun, moon, and stars created, okay? Up in the, in the, in the universe, in the expanse. And then we have on the day number two, we have the skies and the water. And then on the, the, the parallel day, on day number five, we have the birds and the sea creatures. And then we have on day three, we have the vegetation and those kinds of things, uh, the dry land appearing. And then on day six, we have animals and people. And so they call this a framework theory because it seems to be some kind of poetic structure. These days one and day four seem to go together and day two and day five seem to go together and three and day six seem to go together. Okay? Now there is some parallel there. There is some structure there. Now it's not perfect. As you look at the text and you examine it yourself, it's not perfect. But there is something to it. Now what we have to remember is because something is done um, it has some kind of structure or has some kind of fi- figurativeness to it or some poetry to it doesn't mean that it's not true. It doesn't mean that it's not literal. Okay? If you think about the, the plagues that happened in Egypt, the ten plagues. Now, we know today, as you look at, at history, those plagues were plagues against Egyptian deities and Egyptian gods. Uh, they were purposeful. It wasn't just ten plagues. We can, we can see symmetry in those ten plagues. But it doesn't mean they're not historical because there was symmetry and there was form in those plagues. And the same thing too with the days of creation. Uh, The fact that there is some symmetry in how God created this earth uh, says nothing about uh, the timeline that God created this earth in. And then we have to go back to how Jesus himself quoted from both Genesis 1 and 2 as historical uh, to settle the divorce issue that he was presented with. Now for this charge that Genesis 1 is poetry. It, it's, again, it seems to be, be compelling. It seems to be they're onto something here. But I want to read to you from, from Psalm 104, uh, which is poetry about creation. Okay, compare Psalm 104. I'm going to read starting in verse number 5, just for a few verses. It says, He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with a deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. 
They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. That's creation poetry. Uh, Genesis 1 is narrative. And as you look at, at Hebrew grammatically, uh, between Genesis 1 and the other chapters of Genesis, there's, there's no difference in terms of the vocabulary and the structure. Um, it's not set apart in your Bible as, as Hebrew poetry is because Hebrew poetry has distinctive marks. And so Genesis 1 is here a narrative talking about history. Another thing that is quite compelling to see the earth or see the earth as being young and see Genesis 1 as being taken as six literal days of God creating the earth is the fact of how Exodus uses the Genesis account. Okay? Genesis was penned by Moses through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so was the book of Exodus. Here we have the same author who penned these words, the same spirit who's inspiring them. And listen to what it says in Exodus 20, starting in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For, here's the reason why, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We see the same thing in Exodus 31. They understood, Moses understood, the people of Israel understood that God made this earth in six literal days and they keep a Sabbath just like God rested on that seventh day. There's no rooms for figure or poetry whenever Moses quotes or uses the days in Genesis 1. We also have uh, the grammar in Genesis 1 where it talks about this word day. And this is the regular Hebrew word for day, a normal day. It's not meant to be a figure of speech. It uses the word evening and morning to refer to this day as if it couldn't be any clearer. It uses the first day and the second day. And anytime we have these ordinals before the word day, it's never taken in any kind of figurative sense, but rather it means a literal day. We have in verse number 14 where it says, this, but the sun, moon, and stars says, let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. The same day, same word there, the same day is being referred to in the other verses. Okay? There, if you think about it, there, there's no other way that God and Moses, the, the, the very ones who penned these, these words in Genesis 1, there's no other way they could have been more clear if they meant to mean six days that God created this earth. They couldn't, they couldn't make it any clearer than it is here in Genesis chapter 1. The real interpretive issue, the real reason why someone would not take a literal or a normal understanding of Genesis 1 is this idea of deep time. I mentioned that Three Views book. They didn't present a literal view again because science just apparently does not support God creating this earth in six days. It goes against the scientific consensus, but remember that scientific consensus is anti-God. Uh, it's, it's naturalistic, materialistic, nothing supernatural, uniformitarian. It's all these words that we do not support or view as Christians. Now, Bruce Waltke, he's, he's a respected Old Testament scholar, and I've profited from his work, but he reads Genesis 1 here to be figurative, to be deep time. And in this commentary on Genesis 1, he says that taking Genesis 1 literally, he does say, why he doesn't take it literally, he just says it, it poses scientific problems. 
And that's it. That's why he would not understand Genesis 1 to, to be the understanding that, that we've read and that I've tried to argue for. And then in the footnote, he says this. Most scientists reject a literal 24-hour period. So therefore, it's not an interpretive option since most scientists have rejected it. Now, I do commend him for his honesty, but he is changing his views of Scripture based on an unbelieving, anti-God view of this world and not from what the Scriptures say. We must remember, ladies and gentlemen, that science has been wrong before, okay? Many times over, all right? Our, our creed is that the Bible is the Word of God, that it's inerrant, infallible, sufficient, necess- necessary, and authoritative, cannot be broken, all right? Um, the creed of, of scientists, of the naturalists, is the same thing, science. But science has crumbled so many times in the past. It doesn't have that track record. It, it, it's, it's, for instance, think of, think of this. Alchemy was the majority, the, the medi- medieval belief that all base metals could be transmuted into gold. You know, we think of that. It's ridiculous. That was science in their day. Uh, phrenology, uh, Victorian era belief that your head shape would reflect your character traits and your mental capacity. Well, yeah, we love that. But that was science. That's what the scientists who were saying that. Astrology, again, that human destiny is controlled by the movement of celestial bodies. And then we have abiogenesis, this belief that living organisms can spontaneously appear from dead ones or non-living organisms. And again, these things have all been shown to be unscientific, although they were promoted as science in their day. And in our day today, you, you likely have heard that well, carbon dating has proven that the earth is millions and billions of years old, right? Now, the problem with that is carbon dating. You know, carbon dating is based on, you know, carbon, most carbon in the world is C12, carbon 12, and there's a, a bit of it that's carbon 14, which is not stable, so it breaks down. And so the half-life of carbon 14 is, is just under 6,000 years. And so what they say is, is, is carbon dating really only works uh, to about 50,000 years old, you know, at, at 100,000 years, we, we'd expect no carbon-14 anymore. So we can only use carbon dating to date things that are relatively recent, tens of thousands of years. Anything more than that, uh, carbon-14 dating uh, is not going to work. Now, the issue with that, carbon-14 has been found in many things that are allegedly, are allegedly very, very old. Coal, for instance, is supposedly formed millions of years ago, yet it's full of carbon-14. Diamonds are supposedly formed billions of years ago, and in fact, C-14 is found in them as well. Uh, deep down rock layers that evolutionists believe to be hundreds of millions of years old still have carbon-14. In fact, everything in this world uh, uh, made of carbon has carbon-14 in it. So what are you supposed to say? You, scientifically, then, we'd say the Earth has to be less than 100,000 years old, less than 50,000 years old, scientifically. But they say, nope, carbon-14 is only good, reliable for those things that are, that are recent. Okay? So we just won't think about the implications of that unless let's move on. Uh, Potassium-argon dating is another method that they use to, to test things in terms of things that are, that are really old. You know, it can test hundreds of thousands, millions of years with this dating method. Although when you use this dating method on rocks that we know how old they are, it gets less than stellar results. Uh, Mount Etna in Sicily is, has some basalt that has been cooled and hardened, and that happened in 1972. 
And when you take this potassium argon dating method, apply it to these rocks, you get rocks that are between 210,000 and 490,000 years old. So about a, you know, half a million years old for these rocks that were formed in 1972. A little bit of a discrepancy. Uh, Mount St. Helens in Washington. Again, the same thing. Explosion happened in 1980. The rocks there that are tested with this dating method, 300,000 to 400,000 years old. We have uh, some basalt from Hawaii uh, that has been there. They know it's been there since 1800, although that's tested to 1.4 to 1.6 million years old. Okay, so it's a couple hundred years old, but it's apparently millions of years old. So it's been scientifically shown that this dating method is unreliable for rocks of known age. But yet most scientists say it is reliable for rocks of unknown age. You know, if we don't know that age of the rock, well, it's pretty reliable. If we do, well, you can't trust it. Uh, science has been wrong many times over. And again, our, our thinking as Christians must be governed by the word of God. We must have the same view. We're called to follow Jesus we should have the same view of the scriptures that Jesus did. And Jesus says, my words will never pass away. Heaven and earth is going to pass away before my words do. He says, this is an unbreakable Bible. Every single word is true. This is God's word. As we said this morning, thank you, God, for your word. Because that's what Jesus viewed of this scripture. And as followers of Jesus, we must have the same view and not compromise to an unbiblical worldview that denies God and denies the supernatural. Now, there's another area of thinking that I want to challenge us on here this morning. It's, it's the idea that, well, doesn't, doesn't geology and doesn't all, doesn't, isn't the evidence that's overwhelming for millions of billions of years? Well, we must understand as Christians, if you're going to embrace deep time, millions and billions of years because you see things in geology and science, that view is contradictory to a Christian who says the flood really happened. Okay, and what I mean by that, the same evidence where one scientist says millions and billions of years, another scientist says, well, that's the flood. For instance, think about the Great Canyon. If you've ever been in the Great Canyon, you know, you have all these strata, all these layers in the canyon and the little Colorado River flowing in the bottom. What they say is, well, over the last millions and years, however long it's taken, this little Colorado River has been slowly etching its way through this desert and it's created this huge canyon. So it's taken a really long time to do that. And, it, and even before that could even begin, you have to get all those layers there. So you have, you have millions of years even before that laying down all those layers before that little river came through and carved that big canyon. And as we come there with a biblical point of view, we say, we look at the Grand Canyon, we say, there's God's flood, evidence of the flood. Because if you, if you are a Christian and you believe the Genesis account, you know that in Genesis 6 to 9, there was a global, cataclysmic, violent flood that covered this whole earth. You think we might find a little bit of evidence of that? Something like the Grand Canyon, perhaps? Where we have a mass of water laying down all that sediment and then rushing and draining away and creating that big, huge canyon? And it's not just... You know, someone like myself, many scientists, geologists see and they can go to the Grand Canyon and see the evidence of God's flood by looking at all those layers and the geology of that thing. People who are not biblically informed have this idea that 
in order to understand these rock layers or to understand the strata, we must understand the past by what's going on in the present. The key to the past is the present. And that statement is just given without any lack of evidence. No evidence. Just you got to take it as the way it is. Uh, because what we see today is you might see a little bit of erosion happening, you know, when the rain comes or winds blow. And so the past, if we see any geological structures, it must have been the rain and the wind is over a long, long time that created those same structures. But what, you don't, what scientists don't understand is if you have a cataclysm, if you have some kind of catastrophe, well, you can have the same results but in a quick amount of time. Think of Mount St. Helens. We have all the strata, all the layers, an explosion, that mountain exploded. And now we have this geological thing that happened very quickly. But if we didn't know that, we'd come to there and say, whoa, it must have taken a long time to lay all those layers down. It must have taken millions of years to get layers like they are. It's not only do we see evidence uh, for the flood there, but we also see uh, trees and other fossils going right through strata of sediment. So these layers of, of sediment that are supposed to take a really long time, we see trees going right through the middle uh, who've been buried quickly by all the sediment. Uh, Tom showed me a book uh, just recently. All over the world, they have these trees that they find deep under the ground uh, that are squished. Okay, not a round tree, but it's like an oval uh, it's been squished and it's, and it's surrounded by this sediment. Now, this tree was squished uh, not you know, while it was growing, but after it had, had fallen down and it had been squished. And so they find these all over the world, buried in this deep layers of sediment. A perfect example of a catechism like or a, a catastrophe like the flood that would come through and bury these trees and end up squishing them down under all this mud and dirt and sand. What's interesting, too, is not too long ago, a geologist, an unbelieving geologist, uh, because of Mount St. Helens, because of other evidence and data, uh, you know, the, the, the strata that's, that's all buckled by the mountains, and, and he said, you know, as a scientific community, we really need to rethink this idea of uniformity, the whole idea that it's taken really long time to get the evidence that we see in the geo- geological record. He suggests that catastrophe or cataclysm might be a better way of explaining the geological record. But what he says in the foreword of his book is really telling. He says, Christians or creationists, don't read into here. Don't use my work to promote what you believe. Okay? You're not right. But I think we need to make some adjustments in terms of how we see our geology. And again, the evidence has led him to that, not a, a biblical worldview. And so as we see in the world today, we see evidence for a global flood. Now, if you say the flood happened and you say millions and millions of years happened, the evidence for those things, um, that, that, that's a contradictory statement because the same evidence. From that evidence, either you have a g- global catastrophe in the flood or you have these uniformity millions of years laying down these slow sediments. You have one or the other. So for those who say, I believe in the, in the global flood in Genesis 6 and 9, and I believe in millions of years, well, it, it's a contradiction of, of the evidence. And it's a contradiction of God's word. Now, as we wrap up here this morning, what, what's, is this even important? You know, what, what's the, do we really get all up in a bunch, you know, about this? We'd be passing out Ken Ham DVDs and books. Like, should we really be trying to promote this stuff? Or should we just, just be quiet and assume that, well, this is not, that big a deal. Okay, there's, there's a number of things 
I think we need to consider when we come to this issue of Genesis 1 and origins. Okay, the first thing is the Bible is at stake. The word of God is at stake. Either God is true in what he said or he's not. Okay, who was there in creation? God. He's the only one that was there. And he's told us how it went down. And so we either believe God's word or we don't. And so the, the Bible itself is at stake. And not only is, is the Bible at stake, but it's God's honor, God's word, God's faithfulness. Do we trust our creator and what he's said and how he's created this earth? His honor is at stake when we consider the creation account. He is the creator. He spoke this world. It says in, in 2 Corinthians 4 that the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone into our heart the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, if God didn't do the first, how can we have confidence that God would do the second? We, how can we trust God? God's honor and faithfulness is at stake when we look at Genesis chapter 1. Let's not rob God of his glory. He is the creator God that set the sun, moon, and stars in place. And he did it with his word. Not only that, we have cultural issues that are at stake. I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that we have issues in our society today. Gender, sex, marriage, uh, family, uh, you know, the value and dignity and worth of humanity. All of these things we see in our society is twisting and corrupting. The basis for those things are all found in the first few chapters of Genesis. Why do we see so much beauty in the human race? And why do we see so much destruction and and this grossness in the human race? Because God has made us beautiful. He's made us in his his image. We are special. And we have dignity and value and worth. And yet we have the fall in Genesis 3. We have the curse of sin. And so we see these two things come together in our world here today. And if you you just say, well, that's all this myth and figurative. You just kick the the legs out of the whole basis for for how we see and, and experience human existence. We must remember how Romans 1 says that God's creative power is perceived clearly by everyone. And so certainly as followers of Jesus Christ, we can't deny God's creative power and say that he somehow guided evolutionary processes. So not only is the Bible at stake, God's honor at stake, um, cultural issues at stake, but the gospel itself is at stake. The good news of Jesus Christ. As I mentioned, Genesis 3 gives us the foundation for humanity, and Genesis 3 also gives us the promise of a coming Messiah, the seed of the woman who is going to come and is going to crush the head of the serpent and bring deliverance and salvation. That's not a myth. That's reality. That's talking about Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ came, he came as the second Adam. The first Adam failed. He fell into sin. Now Christ comes as the new Adam the representative for humanity, the one who is not going to fall into sin. And in fact, rather than than causing this curse to come upon humanity, Jesus Christ lifts the curse through his own sacrifice. He lays down his life for his people that they might live. And if you kick out the, the beginning, the foundation of that, what happens to the gospel? What happens to the second Adam? If you're tampering with the first Adam. If Genesis 1 is talking about millions and billions of years, was the first Adam, was he created by God? Or was he just a really smart monkey that God said, yeah, I'm going to name you Adam now. Okay? No. God created Adam from the dust of the ground. And then he sent the second Adam, Jesus Christ, so he can be lifted from that curse. We might taste salvation by coming to him in faith. Now, when Jesus Christ rose, he rose victorious from the dead. And he bids us now to follow him. But just to follow him in the suffering. To follow him in his life, 
to love him. And he promises a great promise. Jesus Christ, as he sits on the right hand of the Father, as he's working in this world to call the people to himself, he, he promises that he is going to return one day. Okay, and he's going to return and it says, it's going to be like a thief in the night. You're not going to expect this. A blink of the eye and we're going to be changed. Christ is going to come back and it's going to be the last trump and it's going to be this cataclysmic catastrophe event. The, the, the earth's elements are going to melt with a fervent heat, it says in Peter. And Christ is going to come and he's going to establish his rule and his reign. He's going to come to conquer and to judge. The blood is going to be up to his bridle of his horse. He's going to destroy his enemies. He's going to completely destroy Satan. Death and sin is going to be no more. He's going to set up a new heaven and a new earth. And this is going to happen in in a spectacular fashion. God is not going to use an evolutionary process to make his new heaven and new earth come about after millions and billions of years. If God is promising that he's going to come back in an instant, and defeat death and Satan once and for all and to usher his people into this new heaven and new earth. And we believe that. Why, why wouldn't we believe that God created this world in the same kind of fashion back in the beginning of Genesis? You don't have to... If you say that God used this, this evolutionary process this millions and billions of years back in Genesis 1, then, then why are you clinging to that glorious hope of his return and that cataclysmic event when he returns and makes everything new? It doesn't make any sense. And so as Christians, we need to to believe and to hope in that future promise and also believe that God is a God who has acted in the past in that same fashion. When he created this earth out of nothing, when he created humanity special, not evolved from bacteria or kangaroos or gorillas. Rather, he has made you in his image and he's made you to glorify him, to enjoy him and to love him forever to have your purpose and identity in Him. And we have fallen as a human race, and so He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And God is calling you to come to Him, to come to the One who has created this earth, and to come to the One who says He's going to come back and reclaim it from the hands of the evil one. He's calling you to come to Him with humility and repentance and faith and embrace the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. If you hope in a God like that, who is going to deliver on His promises, and if you are a Christian, you do hope in a God like that, you'll have no problem believing that God did that before. Just thousands of years ago, when He created this world for a demonstration of His glory and to the praise of His glorious grace. Let's pray.